I've been always amazed at how some people, some of them clergy, can say that they're confused by the papacy of Pope Francis, that they don't know where he is taking the church. But if you read about his daily homilies, read his weekly general audiences and Angelus addresses, especially if you read his apostolic exhortation, Joy of the Gospel, his vision of the church is very clear. Last week, Pope Francis did an exclusive interview with an Argentinian newspaper, La Nación. He said many things of interest. He actually said what I just said. The people who say that they are confused are not really reading or listening to what the Pope is saying. His vision of the church is that of a field hospital. There are people who are injured and hurting, and the church needs to go in there and help them heal. During the interview, the Pope also spoke about the recent synod on the family. He said that there was lively discussion about marriage and family, but the fundamental teachings of the family were not touched. No one needs to worry that the church is going to change doctrine. Last week, for the general audience, Pope Francis began a new series, this one on the family, and he reiterated what he said in the interview. Doctrine will not change, but we do have to look closely at how we treat people who are hurting and who want to, who need to, be in relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. Indeed, the church is a field hospital. Advent is a good time to go and heal wounds. But not just during four weeks of the year. Advent reminds us that we should be doing this all year round. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is the Salt and Light Hour. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. First, a winner. Anthony Hesslenfeld of Daysland, Alberta. Anthony Hesslenfeld has won a copy of Dan Schutte's book, God With Us, that we featured last week. And for the rest of you, remember that we give away prizes every week. Entering our weekly draw is very easy. Just go to saltandlighttv.org radio and sign up where it says stay connected for a chance to win weekly prizes. All we need is your name and email address. And if you prefer, you can visit us on Facebook, comment on our posts, and that will also get you entered in the draw. Today is our last regular program before our Christmas special. After our news and Saint of the Week, Jillian will be here to tell us what she learned from her kids this month. And after that, we're going to learn about how you can enjoy a pilgrimage to Lourdes without actually going to France. That's in about 25 minutes. In our second half hour, we'll be speaking about a very difficult topic. Our guest, Dr. Peter Kloponis, calls pornography an epidemic. He's going to tell us why and what we can do to begin to heal. And our featured Artist of the Week is a group, actually a choir. You may have heard of the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School and their new hit album, Christmas in Harvard Square. We're going to be speaking with the choir director, John Robinson, at the end of the program. Let's begin with a song from that album. Here are the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School with O Magnum Mysterium from Christmas in Harvard Square.
That was the boys of St. Paul's Choir School with O Magnum Mysterium from Christmas in Harvard Square. And we're going to be speaking with the choir director, John Robinson, in our second half hour. And in five minutes, Saint of the Week with Andrew Santos. But first, Stefan is here with our news. So the Synod document is out. Finally, yes. Uh, the lineamenta, as it is called, was released by the Vatican this week. Uh-huh. And as Pope Francis put it, uh, this is this, these are the words of the Synod Fathers, their conclusions mm-hmm. uh, that they came to. So not only did they release it, but uh, Pope Francis has also uh, ensured that a survey now goes out okay. uh, to the bishops of the world. So once again, uh, this can work as a preparatory uh, act and for next year's Synod right. on the family in 2015. So this is the working document for the ordinary Synod of 2015, October 2015. Precisely. Okay, good. So then uh, this week, then, the Pope gave an interview on the topic of the Synod on the Family and echoed much of what he said uh, to an Argentinian newspaper in the general audience on Wednesday. Right. So uh, he basically said that he told the bishops there to speak frankly, courageously, but to listen with humility. Mm -hmm. Uh, I emphasized that there was really no censorship placed on anybody involved and that the whole Synod happened Cum Petro et Subo Petro, uh, with a guarantee of freedom, trust for all, and a guarantee of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. given the fact that he is in the throne of Peter. Yeah, I love it. I think in the, it was the interview with La Nación, the Argentinian paper, that he said that for, for a synod to work, you, they, they should have the, the bishops should have courage to speak honestly and humility to listen honestly. So that's uh, good advice. Um, the Vatican uh, has also been... Uh, uh, outspoken about uh, nuclear weapons. Yes, they have. Uh, At the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons uh, this week, uh, Archbishop Silvano Tomasi, who Mm -hmm. uh, who represents the Holy See at the UN's offices in Geneva, uh, gave a talk written by Pope Francis that really came down hard on nations uh, for, uh, for their first of all, having nuclear weapons at all. Mm-hmm. But the, really the message coming out of it was that there needed to be action. Uh, for years, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty has been in effect for many nations in the world. There are still some very obvious major nuclear powers that have not signed on to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Pope is encouraging dialogue between nuclear powers and non-nuclear powers to talk not just to each other, but to civic and religious institutions Mm -hmm. in order to find a way to eliminate nuclear weapons from the world. Because even though we've seen an 85% reduction since the end of the Cold War, we still have 17,000 weapons that could be fired at a moment's notice, and even one of those would uh, devastate the world. Yeah, okay, we'll see what happens with that. Um, And I guess uh, not directly related, but not completely unrelated, because the world... uh, Mes- the message for the World Day of Peace has also been released. Precisely. By Pope Francis this week. Uh, the message this year is no longer slaves, but brothers and sisters. Mm. So this uh, really jumps on the theme of modern slavery. Yes. Something the Pope's really been uh, big on yes. uh, and since he, uh, he began mm-hmm. his pontificate. Uh, he referred specifically to forced agricultural mining and manufacturing labor, sexual slavery, forced marriages, uh, people who are forced to fight as soldiers, terrorism, uh, organ trafficking, cross-border adoption. uh, These are all things that he says uh, require a serious mobilization comparable to the size of the issue, saying that not one country can simply solve these things. Uh, And in terms of sort of the manufacturing, the 
uh, labor side of things, he really called on people to say that, you know, often we often talk about uh, businesses needing to be responsible in their practices. But he says equally, consumers need to be responsible in the choices they make for the things they buy, that this is not simply an economic choice, but an ethical and moral choice in everything you buy in your daily life. Yeah, good. So it's forcing us to think about peace from a different point of view. Uh, thank you, Stefan. You can watch Stefan and get the latest updates on perspectives every day, Monday to Thursday, on Salt and Light TV and online at saltandlighttv.org. Hi, I'm Dan Schutte. You're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. You can podcast the show for free at saltandlighttv.org slash radio, and you can tell us how much you like the show by emailing us at radio at saltandlighttv.org. And now it's time for... Saint of the Week with Andrew Santos. How are you, Deacon? I am very good. How are you this week? Very good, thanks. So we have two saints today. Two saints, yeah, keeping up with our uh, with our Advent and Christmas saint. Um, yes, uh, with our Advent and Christmas Saint list. So I think today we're going to look at St. Francis Xavier. Okay. And we're going to look at St. Ambrose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good. So St. Francis Xavier, uh, we know he was born in a family castle uh, uh-huh. of Xavier, which is near Pamplona uh-huh. in the Spanish Nevada area. And I was there for World Youth Day 2011. Really so nice. being there was just so surreal. And just this beautiful, beautiful castle uh, in the middle of the, uh, the, the Spanish landscape. Sent to the University of Paris, 1525. Was there that he got his licentiate, and he met Ignatius of Loyola mm-hmm. and became one of the seven who, in 1534, founded the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Yes. So, 1536, he left Paris to join Ignatius in Venice, and um, he went to Rome in 1538, where the Pope formally recognized the Society. Now, interestingly enough, you fast track to today, and we have the first ever Jesuit Pope, which mm-hmm. is which is just awesome. So during, um, during the decades to come, he converted tens of thousands of people to Christianity. Um, he visited the Paravas, which is at the tip of India, and he went to a whole uh, number of places. He went to Malacca, um, he was known to go to New Guinea, he was in the Philippines for, um, for about two years, mm-hmm. was off to Japan for a number of other years, and in 1551, India and the East were set up as like a separate province, and Ignatius made Francis Xavier its first provincial. Hmm. So uh, in the year 1552, he set out for China, China being all mission territory at that time, and he landed on the island of Sancian within sight of his goal. But he died before he was able to reach the mainland. Right. So working against great difficulties and language problems, um, you know, the Chinese language can be very, very interesting, um, with lack of funds, lack of cooperation, resistance... Um, he left the mark of his missionary zeal on areas which clung to Christianity for centuries. Right. So he was canonized in 1622, and he was proclaimed the patron saint of all foreign missions by um, Pope Pius. Uh-huh. And we look at his uh, feast day on December the 3rd. Right. All right. So St. Francis Xavier, um, we know we spent a lot of time in silence and prayer. And he asked for a lot of guidance and inspiration. So in this Advent season, why I look to him, not only is this feast day uh, in the month of December, but I think we can ask for his intercession if, if you want your time spent in Advent to uh, bear much fruit, not just in the Christmas season, but in the months and years to come. Good. Okay. Uh, let's look at St. Ambrose. Yes. Um, his name was formerly Aurelius Ambrosius. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but in English, it was known as St. Ambrose. He was a bishop of Milan, and he was known as one of the most influential ecclesiastical figures in the 4th century. Um, so he was headquartered in Milan, um, and he was the consular prefect of Liguria and Emilia before being made bishop of Milan by, I guess, acclamation, by very popular acclamation in mm-hmm. the year 374. We know he was a staunch opponent of Arianism, and uh, he was accused of fostering persecutions both of Arians and of Jews and pagans. Now, traditionally, Ambrose is credited with promoting antiphonal chant. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So it was very interesting to read his story. And if you know what antiphonal chant is, um, it's a style of chanting in which, you know, kind of one side of the choir yes. responds um, alternatively to the other. Yes. And he was also known for composing um, a very uh, renowned and interesting Christmas hymn called Veni Redemptor Gentium. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, there are some churches, there are some chapels um, that you can go to that have antiphonal seating. So you can just imagine, you know, that style of chanting, you know, back and forth on each side. Yes. So Ambrose was one of the four original doctors of the church and is the patron saint of the city of Milan, which is in northern Italy. Mm -hmm. And he is notable for his influence on St. Augustine. Right. So um, uh, very interesting um, to hear. So when you look at his story, um, long story short, he spent much of his time listening. He listened to St. Monica... Um, who wept about St. Augustine, her son. Mm -hmm. And I think in this Advent season, um, what we can take away from the story of St. Ambrose is that we only learn if we keep listening. So um, in this season, as I tell our our elementary school students um, at our EDGE program, we need to listen. We need to have a hopeful anticipation. We need to anticipate what people are telling us. So in this Advent season, Deacon Pedro, let's Pray with Ambrose to improve our listening skills. Mm-hmm. Very good. And his feast day is December 7th, correct? Yes, so December the just 7th. Passed. So St. Francis Xavier, December 3rd, and St. Ambrose, December 7th. Andrew, thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. And I guess a I can't believe where time is gone, but I uh, Christ is coming. And Christ is here. I know. Um, wow. So we'll talk to you in the new year. Absolutely. Take care. God Bye-bye. bless. Andrew Santos is our saint expert, and he's also a youth minister at St. Justin Martyr Parish in Unionville, Ontario. Hello, this is Danielle Rose, and you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. I'm Deacon Pedro. You can find Salt and Light Radio on Facebook, facebook.com slash slradio1. And you can also find me on Facebook. Just look for Deacon Pedro and follow me on Twitter, at Deacon Pedro GM. And now it's time for What I Learned From My Kids with Jillian Cantor. Jillian, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. What did you learn from your kids this month? Well, this week, this month, sorry, is, uh, <clears throat> my lesson has come from Annie. Um, and Annie has taught me it is very hard to be too. It is hard. <laughs> yes. It's hard to be too. It's also hard to understand too when yes means no and no means yes and tears come for no big reason and she wants you to go away but why didn't you pick her up and life is just hard. It's just hard and and she was sick for a little while and her disposition kind of changed into this very sad little girl and I was thinking, "Oh, I can't wait till she's better and then she will get back to her new her back to her old self." But then I realized, I think this is her new self. I think <laughs> being two has turned into her, it turned her into a very sad little girl. And uh, so she, yeah, she has a lot of complaints, concerns, 
um, and they're all very loudly verbalized. Mm-hmm. So it is hard to be too. Um, and I think part of the trouble is is that she now she knows what she wants. She now has the words and the voice and the volume to express it, but she doesn't quite have the reasoning to understand why something can or cannot happen. Um, today I had to deal with a meltdown because her candy cane broke in two and she wanted me to put it back together. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of upset concerns <laughs> being voiced because I couldn't put her candy cane back together. Um, but when I say that, I also realize, well, I think, you know, it's hard being two, and it's also pretty hard being 36, <laughs> because I, too, in my prayer time, in my going to God, I know what I want. I have the words and the voice and the volume to express it, but I lack the understanding and the reasoning to know why God will or will not do something that I have brought forth to him. Mm-hmm. So so as hard as it is to be two, I realize it is a reflection of of me and my, even in my adulthood, um, for how I relate to God and, and um, come to him in my prayer time. So it gives me pause when I'm dealing with her, when she's in the middle of a meltdown or a tantrum, to um, just think, uh, how am I handling my requests to, to the Lord? So it's hard to be two, Pedro. Yes, uh, and hopefully you're not having meltdowns, but I know we do as adults <laughs> have meltdowns yeah, with God. Not quite, my meltdowns don't look <laughs> quite the same as hers, but yeah, they still happen. We, we More inside my head. <laughs> inside meltdowns, we learn to inter- internalize them. Yeah. Um, good lesson. lesson. Uh, I'm sure that maybe one of our listeners will, will write in with a suggestion as to how to put together a candy cane that is broken. <laughs> That's what I want to know. If I, if I melted it, maybe, and made a mold, but I just figured by the time that was done, she would have moved on. Yes, it was really no I don't point. know. It's easier so. to eat once it's broken. Then you yeah. have two instead of one. That She was not going for that. No, she wasn't. Tried it. Darn. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Well, Jillian, it sounds like uh, there are lots more candy canes coming with Christmas. <laughs> I don't know after that <laughs> if we're going to bother with any more candy canes. Um, have a Merry Christmas and, and, and a joyful, joyful Advent journey as you approach Bethlehem. <laughs> Thank you, Pedro. Thank you. Jillian Cantor is the producer of the Salt and Light TV program Mothering Full of Grace, and she's the wife of David and the mother of Joseph, Henry, Annie, and Clara. Hello, I'm Dale Alquist of the American Chesterton Society, that Chesterton guy, and you are listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. Have you ever wanted to go to Lourdes? Well, did you know that it's possible to experience a pilgrimage to Lourdes without actually going to France? To tell us more, I am now joined by Marlene Watkins. She's the president and founder of North American Lourdes Volunteers. Marlene, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much for having us. So very quickly for for, uh, listeners that might not know, what is Lourdes? Well, Lourdes is a holy place. It's a shrine in the south of France near the border of Spain. Mm -hmm. In 1858, uh, we believe the Mother of God came down from heaven and appeared to a little girl named Bernadette Subirous Uh in the grotto, which is like a cave on the side of the mountain in the Pyrenees. And she spoke to her, uh, prayed with her. She asked her to dig in the ground for a spring of water, and that water was bubbled forward and comes about 35,000 gallons a day to this day. And many miracles that are documented, scientific cures have come from that water, but more so many conversions and healings of the body and the soul have taken place at Lourdes. Right, so it's one of the major Marian shrines in the world. It's a pilgrimage uh, 
uh, uh, shrine. Um, who or what should I say are the are the are the Lourdes volunteers? Um, well, at Lourdes, there are associations in the church called hospitalities, uh-huh. and there are 240 of them throughout Europe, and they bring the very sick and the dying and the handicapped to Lourdes each year. But there is never a Lourdes hospitality that brings the sick to Lourdes outside of Europe. We're the first ones outside of Europe, so therefore people not only from the United States and Canada come with us, but Central, South America, even Africa and Asia, because there are no hospitalities um, in those continents. And they travel with us with medical volunteers and lay helpers who make it possible for the very sick. When I say very sick, I mean people who are terminally ill, maybe someone a stretcher, people with oxygen, kidney dialysis, needing infusion therapy in France. We make pilgrimages over to the Lourdes and stay in the hospital bed facility. We also are unique in that we bring people to volunteer for the sanctuaries to welcome the millions of pilgrims that come. And uh, all of these services as volunteers is where we pay our own way and we dedicate one week of selfless service to the sanctuaries and to the sick. And the third thing we do is bring the message of Lourdes to those who will not be going to the shrine in France. Right, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. But just a clarification: so, so you are an, an organize one of the one of the hospitality organizations, but the only one in North America, the only one outside, outside of, of Europe. Outside of Europe. So mm-hmm. uh, okay, and then because I always thought that I mean, you, you see people uh, if images of Lourdes and people in wheelchairs or. And I thought that they went on their own, and I suppose they could go on their own, but you exist to help people, assist people who are not able to travel on their own. Right, because many people are intimidated to go out of the country or to travel to Europe on their own, and many people cannot do that. And for many people, it's not prudent to do that without the volunteer doctors and nurses and people to care for them. And some people come on their own independent. They live in a, um, a facility, and they have no one to travel with them. Right. And because our charism is family, we have volunteers who come and experience the pilgrimage with them, just uh-huh. adopted family members, and they come and make it possible for that person to go to Lord. And anyone can be a volunteer? Anyone can be a volunteer. It just has to be in our heart to, um, to serve in the charism of family with a centered in love. Um, and we're serving as Christians. Uh, we're, we are the hands and feet of Christ serving each other. Okay, now this other thing that you do that you mentioned for people who are not able to go, how, do they can, how can they experience the Lourdes pilgrimage if they don't actually go to Lourdes? Well, it's exciting, Deacon, because for the first time in the history of the Catholic Church, the, um, the virtual pilgrimage experience of Lourdes through North American volunteers is recognized as equal in grace through a plenary indulgence to the actual experience. Uh-huh. So it's the first time they've recognized that this virtual experience of any kind in the world and the history of the church is equal so if you experience a virtual pilgrimage it's the same indulgence as if you went to france and what we do is recreate the pilgrimage experience in about 90 minutes although when we're in schools and sometimes in prisons it's less time than that but on average about 90 minutes to two hours we bring grotto rocks they're taken right from the rock where the mother of god stood Mm -hmm. they're entrusted to us by the bishop we bring the rock so people can touch the rock as if they were in the grotto we bring water from the spring and everybody who comes gets a little bottle of water to take home because all pilgrims who go to lords come back with lords water Mm -hmm. 
We also have a Eucharistic adoration and blessing, just like it's 5 o'clock in France. And then we have a rosary procession, if it's candlelight in the evening, or if there isn't a rosary procession, we have Eucharistic procession inside the church when possible, and we pray a decade of the rosary together. And all of this is a prayerful experience intermingled with the history of the apparitions. And because we are trained guides of the sanctuaries at Lourdes, France, giving the virtual pilgrimage, we have these big images on as big a screen as we can project. Right. And instead of being in the grotto talking about the message of Lourdes, we're standing in front of an image of the grotto. Instead of being in Bernadette's house, we're standing in front of an image of her house. Beautiful. So there's these guided images and a guided spiritual visit, just as if we were in France. It's the same guided visit we give in France, just distilled down to be able to be either in the parish church, the Catholic school, at the university, or in the prison, or in the convent. Beautiful. Sounds like a wonderful experience that people can bring to their parishes. I'm gonna, I know that you're going to be in Toronto, so I'm going to try to go to one of the Toronto dates. So on December 22nd, you're in Shirley, Massachusetts, but I think that's a private, it's at a, at a maximum security prison. Correct. The one in Shirley, Massachusetts, so it's not open to the public, I'm assuming. Um, January 3rd to the 7th, you're in Toronto and the Toronto area. January yes. 9th in Syracuse, New York. Uh, January 11th in Chino Valley, Arizona, from the 11th and the, to the 20th of January in various locations around Florida, and January 24th in uh, Oro Valley, uh, Arizona, and all those dates are on the website, lourdesvolunteers.org. Um, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Uh, it was completely new information for me, but I think it's fascinating, and I hope that some of our listeners will be encouraged to find out more, and maybe you'll get some new volunteers. That would be a blessing. We are so excited to be able to come into Canada again. Thank you, Marlene. Marlene Watkins is the president and founder of North American Lourdes Volunteers. You can learn more about them, learn how to become a Lourdes volunteer, or find out how to bring a virtual pilgrimage to a parish near you at their website, lourdesvolunteers.org. Coming up in our second half hour, helping families win the battle against pornography and the boys of St. Paul's Choir School. So don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Did you know that there are 40 million adults in the United States who regularly visit pornographic websites? 47% of Christians claim that pornography is a major problem in their home. Every second, over $3,000 are spent on pornography. That's over $97 billion worldwide every year. $13 billion comes from the United States. Did you know that child porn generates $3 billion each year? Pornography plays a significant role in 56% of divorces. There are 4.2 million pornography websites on the Internet, and every second, 25,258 Internet users are viewing pornography. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is being produced in the United States. There are also 100,000 child porn websites worldwide. Now, some may not think that this is a problem, 
but my next guest calls pornography an epidemic. And to tell us why and to tell us how we can heal, I am now joined by Dr. Peter Kleponis, author of Integrity Restored, Helping Catholic Families Win the Battle Against Pornography. Dr. Pete Kleponis, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So how would you define pornography? Pornography is any image that leads a person to use another person for their own sexual pleasure. It's devoid of love, intimacy, and relationship, and it's very addictive. So the key word there being the word use. Use, correct, yes. Now, you know, when, a man, when a man's looking at pornography, he's looking at that woman, he's not thinking that that's a person with thoughts and feelings and so forth. All he knows is that she's there for his sexual pleasure, and he's going to use her. Okay, so it's not just images of naked people, no, per se. No, anything, anything, yeah. Anything as long as that image is being used... Quote, used for sexual gratification. Correct, yes. Now, would the Catholic Church def- define pornography the same way or slightly different or add anything to that definition? Well, the, the Catholic Church has, has a very wonderful definition of it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and it is, is very comprehensive with it. But, you know, it, it does talk about how it just um, violates the dignity. Right of the conjugal act, you know, right. where it's just reducing people to base pleasure. Right. right? To me, that's simply using people for your own sexual pleasure. Okay, so for the people who would say, well, what's the problem with that? Why is it wrong? What are, what are the effects of pornography? Well, I mean, the, the effects of pornography are numerous. You know, first, first of all, as you, you said, you know, you just read off some statistics mm-hmm. in there. Uh, it's ruining individual lives, it's ruining marriages, families, careers, and so forth from all that. Uh, and, you know, and on the, on the more basic human level, it objectifies people. So, right. so if I'm a user of pornography and, and I've uh, created this idea that people can be used as objects, then that is going to directly impact how I relate to, real, to people in real life? That's what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Exactly. It's going to change how you relate to people. It's going to change how you um, uh, view people. It's going to change your your view of beauty, uh-huh. what true beauty is. You know, uh, you know uh, the women you see in pornography, thanks to all the plastic surgery, makeups, and digital enhancements, they're not real. They're not real, yeah. They don't exist. Okay. But this is what it really trains men's minds to view that as what beauty is. Right. And then you look at a real woman who's not a size zero, she's around a size 12, mm-hmm. and he's not going to be able to appreciate the true beauty of a real woman. So is it possible for someone to say, well, I suppose it's possible for them to say, but is it true that, oh, no, I, 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 I can compartmentalize, that's just those women, but I will not treat my wife this way? Uh, in the beginning they say that, but after a while the lines get blurred and it's very difficult, very difficult to to keep that distinction, right? Uh, and what's happened, a lot of men have found themselves unable to perform sexually with their wives simply because they've conditioned themselves to only become aroused to the women in pornography. Hmm. So in, in your practice, you see very commonly how pornography is uh, damaging marriages. It is. It, it's devastating what it does. You know? It's adultery. It's as serious as an extramarital yeah. affair. Yes. See, for men, it may just seem like images on a computer screen, but for women, those aren't images. Those are other people. Right. 
Right. And for, for, for someone who's not married, how, how I suppose because they've trained themselves to have this idea of women either as objects or as fantasies, then that will impact any future relationships that they will have. Oh, exactly. In fact, there have been several studies that have been done that have shown that college-age men who are regular users of pornography uh, don't want to get married. They believe that true happiness and fulfillment in life is going to come from sexual encounters with multiple women and not by making one commitment to one woman. Interesting. So it's really changing the way people view fulfillment in life. And we know that you know, going from sexual partner to sexual partner, although it may be exciting in the moment, in the long run, does not fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. Right. Now, I've heard people say, and I, I think you refer to it as well, as, as an addiction. What, how is it similar to other uh, substance abuse, per se? Okay. Well, again, you know, we, we, we look at, you know, why is it being used? Initially, people get into pornography out of curiosity. You know, they view it as simply a dull entertainment, but really deep down inside, they're using it to deal with a lot of negative emotions, mm-hmm. stress, anxiety, depression, and so forth. All right? They're self-medicating. Right. They may not believe it or want to think of it, that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Second of all, as with other addictions, after a while, a tolerance develops. Right. A little isn't enough. You need more of the drug to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. So soon that soft porn doesn't work anymore. You get into more hardcore, more deviant forms of porn, violent forms of pornography right. in order to get the same effect. And the amount of time you spend pursuing pornography increases. Instead of 20 minutes once a week, it could be an hour or two a day. Mm-hmm. So there's a tolerance. Thirdly, there's a dependence that develops. Now, the brain has become so accustomed to operating at such a high level of chemical stimulation that it needs to maintain that just to be able to function in daily life, mm-hmm. right? So where do we see this? Well, you know, you have the man who goes online, he views pornography afterward, he feels horrible about it, and he says to himself, I will never do it again. Mm-hmm. And what happens? The next day he's back at it again. Right. Right? There's a dependence on it. He needs that fix for right. it. And ultimately, it leads to a life that is out of control because it gets to the point that no matter how hard he tries, he cannot stop. Mm-hmm. Cannot stop. Yeah. Now I've heard that that it, because of the way men's brains are wired to to be visually stimulated by sexuality, um, yeah. addiction is more of a, a problem for men. But you say in the book, and you have a whole chapter dedicated to how it affects women, and not the yeah. women who are victims of pornography in the pornography, but how women can be also become addicted. Exactly. You know, we men we're, we're wired to be visually stimulated. You know, we see a beautiful girl walk by, we look. It's automatic. That's the way our our brains work. Yeah. Women are not wired to be visually stimulated. You know, yes, they, they like to see a good-looking man, but they don't usually get into porn. Mm-hmm. Women are relationally stimulated. Right. That's what gets the brain chemistry going for them. This is why women love romance novels and chick flicks, and, of course, you've probably heard of the Fifty Shades of Grey books yes. and now the movie coming out and so forth. It's relationship mm-hmm. that draws them in, okay? And so... Know, when you eroticize it, right, that's what gets the brain chemistry going and really, you know, gets them addicted. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and you look at it, you know, I, I, I tell people that, you know, yeah, you know, men like to look at beautiful women. You know, that's like running your car engine on gasoline. But when it's pornography, it's like running your car engine on rocket fuel. Right. Right. It's fun and exciting, but pretty soon you're going to get burned out. Uh-huh. The same thing for women. 
Women love romance stories. All right? That's natural. But when you take that romance and you eroticize it, you make it pornified, pornographic. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like going from running the engine on gasoline to rocket fuel. Right. It's too much. Right. And a woman might be doing it for the same reasons that the man might be doing it to, to deal exactly. with other other emotional vacuums that they might have. Now, in the little time exactly. that we have left, mm-hmm. um, and you dedicate a whole a whole half of the book to to the hope. There is hope. How do we heal? How do we heal individually and as a society? Well, individually, uh, it starts by education, knowing the facts about the truth about pornography. And if you are struggling with it or know someone who's struggling, get help. Mm-hmm. You know, look around in your community. Find the people who are trained to deal with this, this type of issue. You can go to my website, integritystored.com, and learn more about it. Right? As a society... Yes, it's going, really in the long run, it's going to take education. Right. Uh, because pornography is not going away. I, I compare this to tobacco use 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, 50 years ago, doctors knew tobacco would kill you. They knew that smoking would give you cancer and lung disease and all kinds of problems, but nobody could say anything about it. It right. was politically incorrect. It was everybody's right to smoke, and we were smoking everywhere, in office buildings and airplanes and restaurants and so forth. It took over 50 years of intensive education and unfortunately, many people dying along the way yes. before we as a culture got the message. And now everywhere you go, it's smoke-free. Now, cigarettes will always be around. They're not going away. But we've changed our culture's attitude towards smoking. And because mm-hmm. of this, you have millions of people who are quitting smoking and many who are just not even starting to begin with. Yes. Good. We need to do the same with pornography. And it's going to require a lot of education. Well, Dr. Sorry, I was going to say thank you for doing your part in helping us get the message. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Peter Kloponis is a clinical therapist and has over 18 years of professional experience working with individuals, couples, families, and organizations. He is also a popular speaker and conference director. His latest book, Integrity Restored, Helping Catholic Families Win the Battle Against Pornography, is published by Emmaus Road, and you can learn more at his website, integritystored.com. Here now are the boys of St. Paul's Choir School with I Sing a Maiden from Christmas in Harvard Square.
That was the boys of St. Paul's Choir School with I Sing a Maiden from Christmas in Harvard Square. Since 1963, St. Paul's Choir School has formed and educated boys in grades 4 through 8 in the great cathedral school tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. As well as a challenging curriculum steeped in the Catholic faith and moral tradition, the students are given rigorous musical training. This year, the boys of St. Paul's Choir School have released their first album, Christmas in Harvard Square, which we've been listening to. And to tell us more, we are now joined by the school's director of music, John Robinson. John, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So I I gave a little bit of an introduction of of the school, but can you tell us a bit more about the school? Who's it for? the, The school is the only boys Roman Catholic choir school in America, so it's absolutely unique. Uh-huh. And it's a real gem, which is um, set up to sing this beautiful music in the church at St. Paul's for daily Mass. Um, and it is that which is our primary calling, and of course, and that which um, brings the choir to become something really excellent and exceptional. And the new recording that we've just released, Christmas in Harvard Square, is really the first time I think people have been able to hear this unique and historic and beautiful Catholic music sound coming right from here in America. So it's a very special time right. for everybody. Now, can you can you give us a little more background? So at the great, it's St. Paul's is a cathedral, and the school is attached to the cathedral. Is that how it works? St. Paul's is actually a a parish church. It's, it's parish. the Harvard Catholic Chaplaincy. It's a regular parish, and uh-huh. it's also the home of St. Paul's Choir School. Right. So um, the cathedral schools, as you say, were set up to serve the music in the cathedrals. Mm-hmm. We're set up to serve the music here at St. Paul's Church, and it has many things in common with a cathedral. It has beautiful acoustics. It's mm-hmm. a really big church. It has beautiful interior um, decoration and plaster work and marbling and all of those good things. And so the effect of that combined with the the singing is just a really beautiful offering, we hope, to, to God every day at Mass. Right. And it's only grades four through eight, so it's uh, the uh, sort of senior elementary students. Uh, how many students? Is it a small school? Is it a boarding school? It's a day school. It's a regular day school. So the boys right. travel in every day from uh-huh. the um, surrounding neighborhood, and they take a full range of academic subjects at the school every day. And yes, as you say, it's for grades four through eight. So when the boys arrive, they are very young, very inexperienced, and really we just um, look for boys who have the potential to thrive in such an environment. And when they leave us, of course, in the eighth grade, yes. their voices have begun to change. So there comes a point when they no longer sing in the choir, but yes. rather they do other things. They do altar serving. They do reading in the church. They do. Okay. Um, they sing as well when their voices are changing. They're in an intermediary kind of choir called the Scholar Cantorum. Yes. Um, but it's a very exciting time for the boys as they're all looking towards, at that point, looking towards high school, of course. And are these children that are looking to musical careers or liturgical music careers, or where do they go to high school? Well, I think the thing that we emphasize to them is just to think about vocations of all sorts, really, and Uh to um, be open to whatever it is God has in mind for them. Some do have careers in church music. Some, indeed, join the priesthood, which is always an absolute Mm -hmm. blessing whenever that happens. We're so proud. Um, But often they will just transfer the things that they've learned with singing and music to be useful disciplines in other things. So I would say the majority go on to completely, um, uh, you know, normal but excellent careers in, right. in things like medicine, law, you know, the, you name it, anything. They're doing all sorts of things in, yeah. the, in the future. As any musician will attest, the musical training is useful in any career. Um, as you know, in Canada we have the St. Michael's Choir School, and oh, yeah, a lot of yeah. this, a lot of the students, because they learn uh, organ, 
And a lot yeah. of the organists actually went through the school. Is that also part of the musical training that is offered at your school? So all of our boys learn the piano, and uh-huh. then when we um, when they've had a good couple of years to um, to see how they take to that, because I think some people adapt to the keyboard better than others. And yes. We then we then offer them the option of the organ if they um, seem to be progressing quickly enough at the piano. It's the trouble is, of course, it's such an investment of time practicing the organ and being able mm-hmm. you know being able to get to an organ is yes, really exactly. challenging. Yes. But we have uh, three organs here at St Paul's that they can use to practice on if they become really interested in that. And we have had in the last two years or the last four years since I've been here, we've had two really superb organ scholars come through the school, one of whom is now at the Juilliard in New York studying Uh organ there, and the other is our senior organ scholar at the church, and both of them are destined, I think, for careers as as organists. They're absolutely unbelievably good, so so that happens every few years, and it's always great when it does. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's get to the album. Why, Why record an album? Because it's just such a special sound here, and it's such an exciting sound. And um, it was at a really high point when um, the folks from Aim Higher Recordings heard the choir, and they'd had their eye on the choir here for a number of years, and um, decided that it was starting to sound the right kind of way to make a really special Christmas album. And I think making a Christmas album makes great sense as a place to start and as a place to to, um, build from, because, of course, Christmas is such a um, deep feast with so many different things going on historically with music. Mm -hmm. So, of course, nowadays we think of you know, all these sort of secular things that play play um, ad nauseam in the shops. But yes. the, the Christmas music that we sing on the recording is just such an incredibly rich offering of wonderful historical music through the ages, um, as well as music arranged and composed very recently. So I, I hope that it's going to be a chance to just share that with everybody and for people to be able to see that Catholic music is really extraordinary and we have this amazing heritage, which um, so many of our... our um, our documents in the church tell us that we ought to be preserving and treasuring. So it's a great opportunity to do that, really. Yeah, it, you're right. It, it's a beautiful collection of traditional uh, Christmas Christmas music. Um, was it recorded in the in the church? Absolutely, it was. And so that, that was, was one of part the of the special point. things about it that we were able to use the acoustic where the boys train every day and where they know how to sing best. Yeah. And so I think that's partly why it's such a special recording, because it really does capture that that um, sound of a boy's choir. And of course, with a boy's voice changing, it can mm-hmm. be a transient sound. It's a sound which changes from year to year. And it's like almost like a good wine that, you know, you have vintage years <laughs> and you have um, years that you want to capture or wish you could capture. So it was really kind of a dream come true that we were asked when we were asked to be able to make this recording. How did you pick the songs? Because I'm sure that there must be lots of other choices. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just really difficult to try and work out what not to do, given that there was just so much Christmas music that's so wonderful available. But in the end, we were just looking for a varied program that made sense and had enough variety to keep everybody listening all the way through Mm -hmm. um, that would be both familiar in certain cases, but also would bring new and exciting things, uh, by which I mean old and exciting, you know, looking looking back to some wonderful um, polyphony there and some plain song that people might not be yes. aware of. But this really is the musical heritage of the Catholic Church. So to be able to share that with people is a very special feeling. Yes, you mentioned that, that some of the compositions are, are modern, and I know that the song we just we just played before the interview, I Sing a Maiden, was actually composed by you. Can you tell us a bit about that song? Yes, it's a it's a beautiful uh, medieval text from the 15th century 
um, which has been set by a number of composers before, but I, um, I envisaged it as a, almost a sort of meditation in which the words Maria come back over and over again. Right. And the, um, the piece was designed to showcase the sound of the boy treble, so it has this soaring melody which gets higher throughout the first half of the piece, and then it reaches a kind of a climax, and then, and then the second part of it sort of dips away again, like a bit like an arch. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of the music on the recording, that the composers had that sound of boys in mind when they were writing it. Mm-hmm. And so it makes the most of that um, very special transient sound you get from boys, which is kind of pure but strong, and it can be expressive. It's so many different things. It's very difficult to quantify. How interesting, and what a great opportunity to be able to have one of your compositions as part of this collection. Would 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 there ever be opportunities for the young students to have any of their compositions? Is that an opportunity for them to do that? Very much so. I mean, yeah. we, we have a very rigorous music theory course here at the choir school, which teaches them all about um, the nuts and bolts of writing music. And then at the highest level, of course, it goes into stylistic composition, which is where all composers begin their trade, really, the ability to write music that is in the style of other composers. As with great artists, you know, you think about Picasso and the way he would have been doing line drawing when he was this age, yes. and trying to draw like Rembrandt or, you know, like, like Giora. And, and it's very much the same with music, that you, you, you'd coach pupils to write in the style of... Um, bark chorales and that kind of thing and once they can start to do that then then expressiveness and their own style starts to come out of that ability yeah what a great opportunity so i'm sure that the people in your community in harvard and and in the surrounding area are very familiar with with your school and with your sound and i'm sure that there's a christmas concert if it hasn't happened already it's coming that's right yes <laughs> the very much so there's one on the 14th of december at three o'clock p.m and then of course we really want people to come and share the christmas liturgies with us here which are at um three o'clock on christmas eve as oh, a oh, lessons and carol service and then the first mass of christmas is at 7 30 p.m on christmas eve as well yes i guess that's the, that's the the proper way to do Christmas music is in the Christmas liturgy. Um, thank you so much for, for those of us who cannot attend your liturgy or are not near for your concert, that we're able to experience a little bit of what you do through this uh, beautiful recording. Absolutely. Please do, yes. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. John Robinson is the music director of the St. Paul's Choir School. You can learn more about the school at their website, stpaulchoirschool.com. Their debut album, Christmas in Harvard Square, is published by Aim Higher Recordings. You can get your copy before Christmas at their website, aimhigherrecordings.com. Here now are the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School with O Come All Ye Faithful from Christmas in Harvard Square. listening to the boys of St. Paul's Choir School with O Come All Ye Faithful from Christmas in Harvard Square. 
And that will take us to the end of the program. This is our last regular program of 2014. Next week, tune in for our special Christmas edition of the Salt and Light Hour, which will also air on TV. You'll be able to watch the Salt and Light Hour Christmas special on Salt and Light TV. Just go to saltandlighttv.org to find out how you can watch it and when. Remember to look for us on Facebook and send us your Christmas greetings. Every Christmas greeting we'll get will get you entered into our weekly draw. You can also look for me on Facebook or send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM. Next week is our Christmas special, and the week after that, I'll be featuring all the new contemporary Catholic albums of 2014, so you don't want to miss either of those programs. That's all for today. Thank you for your support throughout the year, and thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been the Salt and Light Hour.